When I was a medical student, I wasn't sure if my faith had a place in the way I would practice medicine. I needed to see this done well, to have it modeled for me in order to overcome my hesitation and fears. Through their example and friendship, the members of the Catholic Medical Association have inspired me and showed me that yes, this can be done. Come and see how Novus Medicus, the young members of the Catholic Medical Association, can provide you with a sense of belonging and challenge you to use your gifts as a faithful Catholic in the medical community. Visit our website, novusmedicus.org, to connect with us today and start your journey to live out your faith to the fullest in the calling of medicine. Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be author, professor, and Catholic convert Joseph Pierce to talk about suffering and healing in great literature. At our September 2022 annual conference of the Catholic Medical Association, um, the conference chairman, Greg Burke, Andrew, and I took turns interviewing plenary speakers such as Joseph. I arm wrestled and lost to Andrew for the privilege of interviewing Joseph. <laughs> However, I did get the consolation prize of interviewing the chairman and CEO of EWTN, Michael Warsaw. So there is that, which was wonderful, by the way. <laughs> so, Andrew, why did you want to interview Joseph? And how do you think this episode is going to be of interest to listeners who expect a show about the intersection of faith and medicine? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Professor Joseph Pierce, he's a hoot. Uh, he's a funny guy to begin with. Uh, he's got a, a British accent, which I'm always intrigued by. You just don't hear him as often around here. And most importantly, out of the whole conference, I think he might have had the most engaging talk, uh, which is saying a lot because we had a lot of good speakers out there. But there's something that I think all of us really desire, a way to integrate our life, um, our work, our family, our faith, uh, also, you know, classic literature. And whenever anybody brings up uh, uh, some kind of literary illusion, uh, if you know it, it's great. And if you don't, you say, ah, I got to read more. <laughs> and uh, it happens to me both ways. Um, but I really enjoyed his talk because especially so much of what makes good literature is also kind of at the core of why people like to be in healthcare, why I like to be in healthcare, you know, the transcendentals are everywhere. And so he drew a very good contrast between different different books and different stories and the work that we do in medicine. So I'm really intrigued. I'm excited to hear him uh, again since Denver and to kind of share that with our listeners. Uh, amen to that. You know, I've been reading Joseph Pierce books through the years and I was summing them up before the uh, prep for this show and I was amazed. So I've read by him uh, only some of his books. He's written many. I've read Literary Converts, Wisdom and Innocence, a, a Life of G.K. Chesterton, Bilbo's Journey about discovering the hidden meaning of the Hobbit, uh, a Solzhenitsyn uh, biography, A Soul in Exile, and he got to interview Solzhenitsyn's wife. Uh, the book Small is Still oh, wow. Beautiful, his own autobiography, Race with the Devil. Uh, and then I recently listened to Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know. Um, so how about you, Andrew? I know you got to listen to him when you were in college at Ave Maria. What was that like? Yeah, we it, it was such a joy, you know, especially when you go away to college, impressionable young minds. <laughs> uh, I hadn't heard of him actually before that and only became aware of some of his other work when I was there. But I really enjoyed hearing him speak, especially because I already loved The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and then after I, I learned that, hey, he's done an awful lot. I mean, a lot of people would argue he, he's probably one of the Tolkien experts yes. uh, in that field. And so I loved picking his brain. And uh, when, when I was there, too, there's a lot of opportunity for social interaction. So I got to kind of pick his brain off the radar about Lord of the Rings and and we'll see if we can get any more gems today about that. That that could happen. And one of the most intriguing things he mentioned um, in answering, a th I don't know if he was answering one of your questions. It, it probably was. Uh, but he said that there are four kinds of books. There are good, good books. There are good, bad books. There are bad, good books. And there are bad, bad books. Do you, do you remember what this meant, Andrew? I thought it, I think <laughs> I can remember this the rest of my life. 
Yeah, this this seems almost Mendelian, but uh, basically <laughs> you've got you've got morality and you've got quality of writing, yep. and they're they're not the same thing; they're separate. And so you you get the great dyad of a great book that's beautifully written, that's engaging, everybody would enjoy reading it. Those are pretty rare. And then you've got the bad bad books. Uh, you, you might say kind of paperback, cheap. Uh, not not uplifting and not reflective of morality. Those are bad, bad books. Nobody's interested oh, in those. Poor writing, poor morals. That's right. But there's a lot in between where you might have books that reflect really good morality, but the, the writing was not top of the class, you know? Um, <laughs> I think sometimes of like, not to be too pointed, but, you know, Christian movies, made for TV movies. <laughs> or some of the you old biographical books of the 1950s. Yes, the, I mean there's there's a good a good moral there, but the quality is just terrible. You don't enjoy it, right. and then you have really engaging books, no moral compass, and you can think a lot of the bestsellers, uh, especially novel type books in that category, where they're amazing books, but they're not really tethered to reality uh, with morality. And so, if somebody really immerses themselves in that, it can lead to more confusion than anything else. That is a great summary that we learned from Joseph, just a kind of a teaser before the interview. And of course, what do we have now? Our medical trivia ah, question of the day. Medical trivia question. Yes. Yeah, so the category is suffering in ancient literature. So the oldest novel ever written was written in the first century AD by a Greek known as Cariton of Aphrodisias. It was called Calliro, about a woman with supernatural beauty. She ends up in a coma because her husband kicks her in the head because he's been lied to that she's been unfaithful to him, which she has not. They think she's dead. They bury her in a tomb. Then pirates come raid the tomb, find her alive, and take her and figure they can sell her as a slave. Later on, the head of the pirates is caught, Theron, and he is tried and convicted. The question, what specific type of suffering did his sentence entail? You'll have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but after this break, you'll get the tasty tidbit of listening to Joseph Pierce, author extraordinaire, here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We are now joined by Joseph Pierce. He's got a long um, backstory, and you can read about it on his website, jpierce.co. That's J-P-E-A-R-C-E dot C-O. No dot com, just dot C-O. Joseph is currently visiting chair of Catholic Studies, the St. John Henry Newman program at Thomas More College in Merrimack, New Hampshire. He is still writing, teaching, editing, and he teaches at numerous levels. One of my children just has his homeschools, high school courses. He teaches bachelor's level at uh, Thomas More. And at the other Thomas More in Houston, he's helping with a uh, master's level program. He just released through Ignatius Press 12 great books, Getting to Know the Classics. Uh, and he just submitted another new one on the history of Christendom, which uh, will take a little while to get to publication. He says he's resting on his laurels now in the beautiful state of South Carolina. Joseph, welcome to Dr. Doctor. It's a joy to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Joseph, we might as well start by what the heck is great literature? Well, I, I think one way of looking at it is, you know, the, the great men in, in the truest Buddhist sense of the word are the holy men. And the, the, the greatest men are canonized by the church so that we know that they are worthy of reverence and we can, they're in heaven and we can pray to them. The great books, in some sense, are analogous to that. The, the, the great books are, are, uh, have uh, survived the test of time, have spoken to countless generations across the centuries with timeless truths, and timeless truths, by definition, paradoxically, are also always timely, because if something's timeless, <laughs> it's always timely. And therefore, they, they, they passed the test of timelessness and timeliness uh, across the centuries, and they've been canonized. So we have a canon of great books. Um, and, and that's basically the way that we ultimately test it. So really, generally speaking, there's going to be nothing which is in the canon that's not at least 50 years old, because like, uh, like a good wine, a good book needs time to prove itself. Man, that's excellent. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that so often people will recommend modern books, but there's something different, right, about modern literature. It hasn't stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, classics might still be being written, 
but it's very difficult. You know, it's like your eyesight. If, if something gets too close, you can't focus on it, right? And, and if we're too close to something, it's difficult for us to know the extent to which there's a timelessness in this or whether we, we are just, uh, we are besotted with the timeliness of it. That, you know, it, it, it speaks to us now in our particular situation. But will it speak to our children and our grandchildren in their situation? And that's the test. So I'm not saying people should not read contemporary literature, um, but I do think they need to know the difference. And I would say that you know the difference means there has to be a deference uh, in favor of the classics. So you'll be dead by the time you find out if any of your books are classics. Thanks be to God. <laughs> <laughs> so Joseph, in, in Denver at our meeting, you said that the acceptance of sorrow is the secret of life. So give us an example from great literature that um, helps to exculpate explicate this hard for me to say well first of all i, I i'm not going to contradict myself here but i am going to say there are some great books that are not in the canon uh and, and therefore you know as there are as there are saints in heaven that have not been canonized um <laughs> so uh that that there's, there's a great novelist who's sadly neglected these days um and so far you could say hasn't stood the test of time but was a best-selling novelist between the two world wars. And that quote that, that I gave at the CMA conference you've just quoted was from one of his novels. So ah. I think we owe it to him to give him the due here. So this the, this novelist is someone called Maurice Baring or Maurice Baring. Uh, and he uh, his final novel was called Darby and Joan. And there was a priest character in that novel. And that quote, the acceptance of sorrow is the secret of life. When you understand that, you will understand everything, is by that priest character in that novel by Maurice Baring. And so that's what I quoted. But of course, that's that although it's quoted in that novel, it's it's something which is true, and other people have said the same thing in other ways. I mean, really, it's about taking up your cross. In some sense, he's stating something which should be obvious, although it isn't, which is why we have to keep stating it. Man. And so, you know, in, in literature, it, there's a lot of, I don't know if the right word would be analogies or caricatures of life. How, you know, as physicians, suffering is what, what we deal with and we try and try and alleviate in any way that we can. How can people in the medical profession draw from literature encouragement and lessons regarding suffering? Well, the first thing, you know, is that, 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 that I'm not a doctor, but I am a human person. And that's something I do have in common with both of you, even though I'm not a doctor. Uh, and, you know, and the thing about the humanities is the humanities teach us about our humanity. And so the one, one thing a doctor has, first and foremost, is to have a sympathy and an empathy and an understanding of the patient as another human person. So what great books do is allow us to grow in our own humanity that we may better understand the humanity of others. Uh, so that's the first thing. And, and one manifestation of that understanding of humanity is how literature shows us in multifarious ways um, uh, different aspects of suffering, um, what causes suffering, and, and, and what should be done with it once, once we have it. Um, and, and these, of course, are, 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 in some sense, diagnostic questions, not in the same way as, as, you, know, as, as you diagnose an illness, but it's really diagnosing the human condition uh, and, and coming to very, very valuable, indeed priceless, uh, as I've said, timeless conclusions. So, Joseph, another statement that you made in Denver, uh, I was taking notes, is that if we do not sacrifice ourselves we sacrifice others. What does that mean, and how is that demonstrated in great literature? Yeah, well, basically, this is really it goes right back to the garden. You know, sometimes I'm a hippie. You know, we just got to get back to the garden, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, but it's true. Uh, basically, it's all ultimately about pride and humility, um, and you know. Humility is uh, giving ourselves to others. I mean, first of all, giving ourselves to God and then giving ourselves to neighbor. So we go right back to the garden, giving Adam giving himself to God and giving himself to Eve. Um, that's humility. Uh, pride, because because evil does not have a, a, an existence. It's, uh, it's, an, it's an absence of the good. Right. Pride is just the absence of humility. So when you don't have humility, you have everything that follows on from that absence. So basically, Pride, so humility is giving ourselves sacrificially to others. That is what love is. Love is laying down our lives for the beloved. 
Um, so that's that. That's a fruit of humility. Love and humility are indissolubly bonded, married, if you like. The absence of that marriage or the divorce, if you like, or, or, or that follows from that through pride means instead of sacrificing ourselves for others, we sacrifice others for the self. It's about me, and I will get what I can from you. And if you gratify my desires, perhaps we might even get on well for a while. But ultimately, as soon as you don't gratify my desires, you're out of here. And where is that shown in great literature, Joseph? Well, I mean, it's it's one of the, you know, great literature is like a great tapestry, a, a, a pattern that shows us humanity throughout the ages. And it's it's almost uh, ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. So... Uh, well, we, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the Iliad. Um, you know, the, the, the main story of the Iliad uh, is the fact that, that uh, uh, Achilles, because of his pride, because of his absence of humility, um, sacrifices others for himself. Um, so he, because he falls out with, uh, with, with uh, Agamemnon, uh, he decides he's going to be a traitor because you're in a war situation. You're the star warrior and you go on strike. Right. And, and there's all sorts of disastrous consequences. Many of his allies, his friends, including his best friend, are killed as a direct consequence of Achilles' pride and the anger, which is the bitter fruit of that pride. So you go back to the very first um, uh, the first classic work of Western civilization and we see it already in place there. And the Achilles heel if you like, you know, our, physically, our, our, in, in later myth, is, is obviously Achilles' heel. Right. But spiritually, his Achilles' heel is his pride. Right. Very good. Well, let's bring it up to 20th century literature. One of the books you talk about, and you called it the greatest novel of the 20th century, and that was Brideshead Revisited. And this book, which I have listened to, I haven't read, uh, has great suffering. So what are some of the aspects of suffering we can learn about from this book? And why do you call it the greatest novel of the last century? Well, to answer the, 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 the latter part of the question first, uh, the reason I think it's the greatest book of the 20th century is the way that it achieves to do something which was almost impossible. Oh. Um, so in, in the preface to the second edition to the novel, Evening War, the, the, the author says that the theme of the novel is the working of divine providence uh, in the lives of closely associated individuals. And he said, this is a theme which might be presumptuously large, but I make no excuse for it. <laughs> now, it's presumptuously large because it's very difficult. Because basically what it means is the, with the protagonist of the novel, ultimately is not any of the, 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 the human characters we see walking around, is the invisible hand of God. Um, so what, we, what we're called to do is to look for that hero of the story who's not visible, but is present. Um, and, 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 and that, you know, to, to bring that off successfully, which war does brilliance, is what makes it the greatest work of the 20th century. Um, and the hand of providence basically brings people to uh, love and to wisdom, which are ultimately the same thing. We talked about sanity and sanctity being the same thing at the conference. So, you know, love and wisdom are the same thing because uh, sanctity ultimately is love and, and wisdom and sanity are essentially the same thing. Um, that uh, it's suffering that brings the prideful characters to their knees in a good sense of the word. And, 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 and even in war uses two masterful metaphors in it. One is uh, a twitch upon the thread which uh, is the title of the second part of, of, of the novel. Um, and uh, that's taken from a Father Brown story by G.K. Chesterton. And basically that the analogy is, of course, is God is the fisherman, right? And we are on the line, even if we don't <laughs> know it. You know, none of us are free <laughs> from the hand of God, free right. from this invisible line. And we could swim off merrily to the ends of the world doing our own thing. And we're going completely the wrong direction. We're swimming perhaps in toxic waters. We're killing <laughs> ourselves, right? And then there's a twitch upon the thread. In other words, we are forced to go where we don't want to go, right? We're jerked out of where we want to be to somewhere we don't want to be. But it's that twitch upon the thread that actually saves us from ourselves. And then the other metaphor, which I think is, is marvelous, uh, is uh, the metaphor which is just used in the final, final chapters of the novel of the avalanche, and, and it's of a, an Arctic heart. So you have this Arctic hunter. And really what it is, is that Julia uh, and, and Charles are basically now in this adulterous relationship. 
they're both in unhappy marriages. Uh, they're both seeking divorces, and the plan is that they will then remarry. Um, uh, but they're basically in an adulterous relationship. And so that what they've done is they've made this little nice warm hut for themselves, right, where they are cozy and they are happy with each other, but out there are howling blizzards. The rest of the world is the enemy. They have to sort of cost it themselves and shut themselves off in their own microcosmic love, right? Um, uh, so what does God do? He and the way it's described is beautiful. That outside this Arctic hut, the snow is building up against the door. You know, there's this sort of big pressure. And then the first sun of spring, right? Not violence, right? It's when the sun comes out. And the sun comes out and the warmth. And then it's the warmth that melts the ice at the top of the slopes. And that melting ice then causes the avalanche that comes down and makes the Arctic heart nothing but splinters. The Julia's and Charles's world, the coast of the world made for themselves is destroyed. But what happens from that is a resurrection for both of them. Julia returns to the practice of her faith, and at the end of the novel, she's in Jerusalem, she's in the Holy Land, with all, all the symbolism uh, that that entails. And and um, Charles is on his knees in front of the Blessed Sacrament um, as a new as a new convert to the faith. So it took the avalanche, it took the destruction of all their worldly desires to bring them to their knees and then to raise them to new life. Sounds like the Old Testament, you know, <laughs> it's just the, the classic story of God constantly trying to bring us back from wherever we find ourselves and sometimes letting us get so far away that the juxtaposition is what draws us back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this is this is one of the wonderful things about literature. And we do need to remember, by the way, that by the Bible is literature. Um, the, 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 you know, the church teaches us that you can't read the Bible literally. If you read the Bible literally, you're misreading it. You have to read the Bible literarily. So um, St. Augustine teaches us this and St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us specifically that there are three separate levels of allegorical meaning in the reading of scripture so if we don't if, and this is one of the reasons why we do have to learn literature because we have to be able to see reality literarily in order to be able to read and you know to, to, be able, to be able to read is not being able to read the literal letters on the page it's to be able to read the signs and the symbols and the allegorical dimensions that, that, that follow from that and that's as true of the bible or even more true of the bible than any other work of literature now, how how would you advise somebody who maybe took it upon themselves, and I can even think of maybe a freshman in college <laughs> trying to read the Iliad and uh, missing the point, you know, and not appreciating the beauty, uh, asking for a friend? Um, how how do you get better at seeing that and and reading things literarily? Well, one one of the problems first of all is that in the modern academy. Um, it's the case of the blind leading the ignorant, you know. So, um, you know, that modern literature professors have no idea of the deeper. Uh, they they can't read literarily. They can't read literature, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're reading through agendas, right? They, they're approaching uh, yeah. the work with a preordained, a prejudiced agenda, uh, and and that prevents them. They're either reading as a Marxist or a queer theorist or a feminist, right? So they're not actually looking at the work for what it is. They're looking at what they want to see there in order to use it for propaganda, right? So you've got these poor kids at college, right, that are basically wide-eyed and then fit for brainwashing, which is why, you know, that the, 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 the couple of dozen very good Catholic schools out there in the Newman Guide uh, are, are, are very, very important. So that, that's the first thing. I don't try that really answer your question. I, I was, that was a preamble. Um, <laughs> I, I'm teaching actually a course at the moment for homeschool connections to high schoolers on how to read great literature. And really it's a course on how to read. And what I'm doing is going through some of the great works. We're not looking at the plot and what happens, but what the authors are doing to convey a deeper level of meaning through the use of uh, uh, something, uh, a parable, for instance, that a story can actually be a story, but it's also a parable. In other words, with a moral lesson attached to it uh, that doesn't have to be overt, but it's there if you know how to see it. Or in the Iliad, uh, for instance, in the, in the 23rd book, Homer gives us a metaphor of a chariot race 
where basically everybody is magnanimous and the the the, the, the cheating and treachery uh, which could have caused violence is, is is actually assuaged because everyone's showing magnanimity towards each other. And this one episode serves as a metaphor for the whole work that, you know, it's, it's pride and arrogance and fornication and adultery and elopement, all of these things, all of this cheating, and then dealing with that through a lack of repentance on the fact of the wrongdoer and a lack of forgiveness on, on, on a part of the person who's been wronged, leading to uh, the catastrophe of war. What, what we're told by the use of metaphor is this could have been avoided. So it's really learning to read is learning how to have, should we say, antennae and you know, get those twitching for looking at levels of meaning. In Beowulf, for instance, as soon as we hear that Beowulf has, has hand-picked 12 warriors, right, that should be enough for us to think, hand-picked 12 warriors, there's something else going on here. It's not <laughs> yes. just about 12 warriors, right? There's, there's an allusion here somehow to the apostles. Or the tribe ah. of Israel, yes. Well, Joseph, I really want to delve into a little medical connection since it is a medical show. And I, I, I pulled up some things about some famous authors. My daughter's favorite author, my three daughters, love Jane Austen. Um, it's likely that she suffered from some form of lymphoma and they think Hodgkin's disease because she got infections really easily. And this may have been manifesting as early as when she published Pride and Prejudice, but she would go on to write several more, four more novels after that, um, before she died four years later in 1817. So how do you think her own suffering might have informed those subsequent novels like Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting question with, with with respect to Jane Austen, because I see Jane Austen actually as one of the greatest Christian philosophers. Um, she's she's Aristotelian. Uh, she's certainly quasi-Thomist. Uh, and so she approaches suffering um, uh, from the perspective of reason. Um, and, and, and that's why, you know, that ultimately all of the all the suffering caused in her novels are normally caused by people not acting rationally. Um, and by rationally, we don't mean rationally in an enlightenment sense. We mean in reason is connected to virtue, is connected to um, sacrificing yourself for others. There's, a, there's an absolute ins inseparability in Jane Austen between love and reason, as there is in, in, in Aquinas, as there is in Aristotle. Well, this so, is important for you personally, wasn't it? Isn't that the subtitle of your own autobiography, ending up at rational love? Yes, uh, I, I, but the subtitle is um, "My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love." It was it was understanding that that love ultimately is rational, and and, and that, that religion is rational, and that the Catholic Church is the union of faith and reason, the marriage of fides et ratio. It was my because I was always always raised, and this is why Jane Austen is very actually this is she she's, she epitomizes this, you know, uh, the antidote to what what I was raised. I was raised. With, with the notion, which is, I think most modern people are, you have to choose between being rational or be too, or be between being religious. You can be religious uh, and you'll get the comforts that come from religion, but you have to sacrifice reason to do it. Or you can be rational, which means you've got to face the hard facts that we live in a meaningless, merciless world, and you have to you have to sacrifice the comforts of religion. Um, whereas, in actual fact, you know that what I came to see, and what Jane Austen, I think, always knew uh, from her childhood. If you even if you read Jane Austen's uh, Juvenilia, yes, I mean she she, she the, 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 the the woman exuded sanity, and I'm attempting to say sanctity from the beginning. Um, She's. I, I'm happy to call her a saint. I uh, can't canonize. I don't have that power. <laughs> uh, but um, so, so this idea that ultimately the Catholic Church has always insisted that that faith is rational and that reason requires faith, and 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 there's this there's this union, this indissoluble marriage that was absolutely crucial through reading Chesterton, uh, and then. Uh, C.S. Lewis and, and others, and eventually Newman, and then Thomas Aquinas. This was my path to conversion. But Jane Austen, I'd, I'd love to know more. We, we know so little about her, unfortunately. Because her sister I, destroyed her letters. Yeah, I know. So we have very little to go on because, you know, she, you just a little bit we have, the scraps. She was a, an astonishing woman from the time she was a teenager. I mean, th 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 this woman was a giantess. Would you say it was be cleansing for people's souls to read Jane Austen? Yes. In fact, one of my one, one, of, one of my favorite 
one of my favorite things to do at, at talks. I don't know. I can't remember if I did this at the CMA conference or not. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, a, it's a favorite trick of mine. So I ask everybody to raise raise their hands if they've read a novel by Jane Austen, right? And everyone puts their hand out. A whole sea of hands come up, you know. Um, and then, right, put your hands down if you're a girl. And then you've got a few hands, men stood up there and they've been embarrassed. They've been caught out, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, then I, and then I say, and then I say, you know, that, that, that Jane Austen is um, a, 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 a novel, novelist that every man should read, um, not only because of her brilliance and her wisdom, but she teaches us so much about women. You know, and, and it's very important for men to know about women. And <laughs> yes. I can't think of any better places of learning those lessons about women than reading the novels of Jane Austen. There's a top three takeaway, Andrew. And on that note, we're going to yeah, take a break I love it. and come back with some more Joseph Pierce here on Dr. Doctor. We're back with Joseph Pierce. We're going to dive right into another author, and that would be Flannery O'Connor. Flannery was a, a staunch Catholic who lived in the South in Georgia, and she suffered from systemic lupus erythematosus, had incredible joint pain. It killed her father um, when he was maybe in his 20s. Uh, she was expected to live to the age of 30. She actually made it to 39, but her pain was so bad. Some days she could only write for an hour or two, and yes, she's provided us with some incredible literature. So Joseph, easy, easy softball question. How do you think her suffering informed her literature? Well, the, the first thing about her, which I think is, 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 is wonderful is, is she's, they, they call her the hillbilly tomist, yes. you know, that, that she's, she's this, she's Southern to the core and she yeah. is absolutely a Southern belle to the core. Uh, there aren't many people more Southern than she is in, in an authentic sense. And yet she's also Catholic to the core. She understands her faith. It's, it's not an enculturated thing. It's something deep within her. She understands Thomistic philosophy and theology. So the first thing we have to realize is that baptizes her work. I mean, it's important to get this, get this the right, right way around because suffering uh, is something to one degree or another that we're all, we're all going to experience. She experienced it to a degree that most of us, you know, right. thanks be to God, have not had to deal with. But ultimately, it is it is faith and reason that baptizes and sanctifies suffering. So the fact that she understood those things uh, is what informs her work. Now, so she's got the suffering, but she's doing things with the suffering based upon something which transcends and supersedes the suffering, which is the truth of Jesus Christ. But she doesn't do it in an overt way, does she? No, I mean, she actually, she, she epitomizes uh, and carries out with great brilliance what Tolkien and Lewis were trying to do in a completely different genre. Tolkien and Lewis said that we live in such a secular age where Christianity is so uh, despised uh, and, and uh, people will not tolerate it, that, that you have to get past those watchful dragons, so you have to find ways of, 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 of talking about Christian truth in literature that's not obvious, because if it's obvious, it's rejected immediately, however good it is. So they did it, obviously, by way of myth or fantasy, whatever you want to call it. She did it with gritty realism. Um, this is, this is down-to-earth, dirt and guts, blood and guts, southern life with all the prejudice, all the bitterness, um, you know, all the ugliness of human sin. She sort of shows us the whole of that. And then within it, there's this one spark of goodness, right? And this is the candle in the dark. And she's really sort of saying that if you snub that out, what do you have? <laughs> now, this is the only yeah. thing that gives you any light in the darkness of sin. What What's your favorite story by Flannery O'Connor? My favorite is Good Country People. And, and, and I, first, I mean, it's it. one thing about Flannery O'Connor, she could be about as dark as it's possible to be and also be incredibly funny at the same time. And, you know, and, 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 and with charity. That's the that's the Martin. This this is this is not a combination you see very often, right? Someone being <laughs> really dark, right? Really funny, but with charity. Because normally, if it's really dark, really funny, it's 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 very uncharitable, right? You're you're you're, you're having fun at somebody else's expense. miserable expense, right? She doesn't. She never does that. Um, uh, 
So we have in Good Company People the, 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 the character Holger. It's not her real name. Her name is Grace. Right? All the symbolism here, right? She, 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 when, when she has a riding accident as a child and she loses her leg, she then becomes so embittered that she hates God. She hates truth. She hates her name. She changes something about as ugly as you can think of Holger. Right, this is the nature <laughs> to go by, and she's so absolutely convinced that she is now a realist. She understands reality, and reality, of course, is cynicism. Right, she thinks cynicism is 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 seeing things with no sugar coating. So what happens? A Bible salesman comes along, right, who represents everything she hates. Right, <laughs> um, and she's not going to be taken in by the Bible salesman. But the Bible salesman is a hypocrite who doesn't believe in the Bible, right, who just try and make money by selling Bibles, and he steals her wooden leg, right? <laughs> so now she's, she, she can't even walk, the wooden leg that she despises. So, so the wooden leg in, 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 in the short story is, is an image, a metaphor, a symbol for the cross. She has been given a cross to carry. She's had this accident. What do you do with the cross? And we go back to what we said at the beginning about the acceptance of sorrow, the acceptance of suffering. If you don't accept suffering, it will twist you, it will embitter you, it will destroy you. And I, and I, and I at the CMA conference, I think I, I talked about the fact that all of us are on Golgotha in two senses. We, we are there because we are nailing Christ to the cross with our sins. We're also there being crucified with him on either side of him. You know, the good thief or the bad thief, because none of us can avoid the cross. It's coming to us whether we like it or not. What do we do when we get it? We can be like Holger and we can hate God, hate everybody else and see everything cynically because we become bitter and twisted and allowed our suffering to destroy us. Or we can ask God to help us carry it. And then we can be the good thief or we can be the bad thief. And that's the acceptance of suffering or the, or the, or the refusal to accept suffering. Joseph, what's the spark of light, the candle in the darkness in good country people? That that Holger has what I've just basically said that that she instead of hating her hating her mother hating reality hating everybody else um, believing that um, that uh, Christians are hypocrites which they are and therefore Christ is a liar which he isn't right um, all of these all of these 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 constructions uh, these constructs. That are, that are lies and phantasms built from the bit, the blackness in her heart, her cynicism. She's erected um, a, 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 a fantasy world, which she thinks is reality. And when the Bible salesman steals her cross away from now she can't walk. And that's right? when she realizes it was actually a good thing. Well, I don't. I don't. I think Flannery does not give us the uh, the and they all lived happily ever after. That's not her style. No. But, but we are. But we are, we are meant to see that that she could walk with the wooden leg. I see. Right. So she can't walk without it. So she should instead of instead of cursing the wooden leg, right? She should have been been saying that at least Thanks I have a wooden it. leg. Right. <laughs> One last question on Flannery, and then we'll move on to a broad topic. And that is, when I read her, it's so painful to read. I don't want to read anything else by her. How do you get past that? Well, I think that you know she's 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 strong medicine, uh, which <laughs> yeah. means you're supposed. I, I don't think anyone's supposed to take her in large doses. I think that's probably not healthy. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I think she's very 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 good to take in small doses occasionally. Uh, of course, she only wrote two novels, and of course, to read the novel, you're taking it in a large dose, and that can be really painful. And uh, you, uh, um, I know you know Wise Blood uh, yes. better than I do. I'm reading it currently for the first time. May I call her? May I call her? <laughs> but um, but I, I, do, I do know the Violent Buried Away, her other novel, which is extremely excruciatingly painful for me, and excruciating literally as is from the cross, uh, excruciates. Yeah. Um, that. Uh, because uh, the 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 hero of that novel, the innocent victim of the of the of the wickedness of all the other characters, all of whom are sacrificing others for themselves, is a child who quite obviously has Down syndrome. Now we have a child with Down syndrome, so I'm reading as a parent of a child with Downs, and and Bishop, the character called Bishop, uh, this ch- this simple child who has not any bitterness towards anybody, even though they treat him badly, 
he never ever, you know, he's always turning the other cheek in his, in his holy simplicity, you know, uh, that he's the innocent victim. And only Thaniel O'Connor, first of all, only Thaniel O'Connor can make a wooden leg a, 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 a symbol of the cross. And only Thaniel O'Connor can make a child with Down syndrome the Christ figure in the novel. That's her brilliance. Man. Andrew, I think you wanted That's to ask really about good. a larger work of literature. Well, yeah, you know, one of one of the things that I, I always think of you, Professor Pierce, with is The Lord of the Rings. And that's obviously something that's uh, continued to enjoy popularity um, for many reasons. Tell us, you know, I guess I, I might have just a question before we dive into that, because that's obviously so popular. Of all the, the, the books we've talked about in the stories, if someone's not familiar with any of those, what should they go home and read next? Huh. Well, the difficulty with a question like that is that everybody is 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 a different, unique human person. Thanks be to God, you know. So if if you ask me that, as, a, as a, I'd ask, I'd ask, it's a bit like you with your, with your patients, right? You know, you got you got to know more about this, what, what they have, what what they're experiencing. So I, I would start asking you a question: What do you prefer, poetry or prose? Do you like historical fiction? Do you like fantasy fiction? You know, um, uh, I, 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 I try to hone things in. The the point is that we are blessed with uh, a treasure trove of hundreds of great works, the, the blessings of Christian civilization. Um, and it's inexhaustible. I mean, in my house now, I, I, you know, I, I know that when I die, there are going to be hundreds of books I haven't read. So uh, the, the, the good news is it's like finding yourself in the, the midst of a, a paradise where you can pick whatever fruit you want from the tree and and there are so many uh glorious ones that will get, bring great health to you but i can't answer that question um you know i have i have i think the greats the greats are homer dante shakespeare and the greatest work of modern literature is the lord of the rings so there's uh you know there should be something for most people there um <laughs> The Lord, of the, the Lord of the Rings is great, and I, I find that a lot of people start there, you know, with, with uh, Tolkien and the Narnia series and the Lord of the Rings. Uh, a lot of kids start there. What can we learn from the Lord of the Rings to talk about suffering? Well, again, about the popularity of the Lord of the Rings, I was at uh, the, uh, the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in La Crosse, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. about three or four weeks ago, and gave a talk on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings. And there were 350 people there. Um, oh, wow. And what was glorious about it, all ages, kids, through the old people. I mean, this is the power of the Lord of the Rings uh, to reach people. As regards suffering, okay, uh, um, the challenge uh, is how do, you, how do you say this succinctly? But um, I've, I've learned to do this. So Tolkien said, first of all, and I'm quoting him word for word, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Right. So the first thing you have to understand is this is fundamentally religious and Catholic. But then we have a, a mystery or a conundrum, a puzzle. There's no mention of the church. There's no mention of Christ. It's all set thousands of years before the coming of Christ. Right. So how on earth can be fundamentally religious and Catholic? Well, Tolkien uses medieval modes of allegory. So in when 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 does Dante uh, descend from the find himself in the in the dark wood of sin? It's on Holy Thursday. When is when does he descend into the inferno? It's on Good Friday. When does he emerge from the inferno uh, onto in, 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 at, the, at the foot of Mount Purgatory? It's on Easter Sunday morning. Now, so so Grain the Green Knight begins on Christmas Day, and he sets out on his quest on All Saints Day. He's going through a penitential period in the desert during Advent, and it climaxes again at Christmas. Um, you know, I could carry on. So Tolkien's a medievalist. He understands all this. Um, so when is the ring destroyed? March the ring 25th. is destroyed on March the 25th. Right? March the 25th, of course, Catholics know March the 25th is the Feast of the Annunciation. But what many Catholics, most Catholics don't know, is, uh, is that the early church and the medieval church believed that the historical date of the crucifixion was also March the 25th. Tolkien's a medievalist. He knows this, right? So in, in having the ring destroyed on March the 25th, he's having it destroyed on the day in which God becomes man, the word becomes flesh, the Feast of the Annunciation, and the date on which God dies for us. 
Jesus Christ dies for us on the cross. Um, um, so the, 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 the incarnation, life, death, taking of the resurrection, um, that's our redemption. What is destroyed, What the power of what is destroyed through the life, death and resurrection of March the 25th? The power of sin. The power of original sin in particular. What is original sin? Original sin is the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. And the one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them is destroyed in the same date as the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. And from that fact, um, you know, everything else comes out from there. So that means the if the ring symbolizes sin, because the ring is destroyed on that date, then the putting of the ring on is the act of sin, right? Um, and if you put the ring on, you become invisible to the good world that God made, but you become more visible than ever to Salwan because you enter the dark world. You're in his world. You're under his control. But the more you stay there, the more you shrivel and shrink and shrivel, like, like a dark rider or golem. You golemize yourself. But if, if, you, if you're carrying the burden of the ring, you're carrying the weight of the ring without wearing it, the ring becomes a cross, right? The ring is the, the, the weight of sin, but you're not succumbing to sin. So Frodo is, in being the ring bearer, is a cross bearer. He accepts the suffering, right? That's what Frodo is, the, the, the suffering acceptor who takes the ring, carries the weight into the heart of, 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 uh, of, of uh, ultimately to Golgotha, Mount Doom. Which is why, by the way, on dates, when does Frodo and the, when do Frodo and the Fellowship lead leave Rivendell on December the twenty fifth? So Frodo's journey from Rivendell, the haven of Rivendell, the, sat, the, the safety of Rivendell, to Golgotha, to Mount Doom, is the life of Jesus Christ from his birthday to his death day, December the twenty fifth to March the twenty fifth. So you see, Tolkien uses medieval allegorical techniques to convey deep theological meaning. I love it. How 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 did how did this survive modern culture? You know, it's amazing <laughs> to me. And and actually, to repeat a question we talked about in Denver, I think some of our listeners would enjoy. Obviously, there's been this resurgence with new Lord of the Rings material being made that Tolkien did not create. How should we think about that compared to the original Tolkien material? Well, I think I wrote something uh, seeing through the eye of Sauron about the the, the latest um, uh, 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 Tolkien abuse. Uh, I, th I, th I think I, I think I think I began I, I began the article said what would happen if the one store to rule them all and in the darkness bind them were to get its hand on the one ring to rule them all and in the darkness bind them? Well, now we know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. So, Gee, Joseph, well. in our last minute or so here, what recommendations do you have for our listeners on, on the use of great literature to help us understand and deal with our own suffering? Well, I think the key thing is that we, we, we know that we can only access truth through a, 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 an engagement with beauty. Um, God is the creator. He's the poet. Um, we don't live as... Chesterton said, we don't live in the best of possible worlds. We live in the best of all impossible worlds. We're in the presence of a miracle. And, and that means we have to see the miraculous. And, and one way we do that is to engage with beauty. We can do it by, through great music. We can do it through great visual art. We can do it through the experience of walking into St. Peter's Basilica, great architecture. Or we can do it in those great literary uh, masterpieces that we've been talking about today. The important thing is that if we, if we live on the literal level, the fundamentalist level, we're not living at all. We have to be edified. We have to lift up our minds and hearts to God. That's the definition of prayer. That's really only possible if we have the imagination, the imago dei. We are made in the image of God. Our imagination is the imagination of God in us. If we don't use and exercise our imagination, we're in trouble. And if you like what you've heard here oh, today, go to his website, jpearce.co. And you can learn more. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us here today on Dr. Doctor. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. God bless you. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, it's on suffering in ancient literature. So in the first novel that we know about, 2,000 years old, Theron, a pirate who kidnaps the lovely Callie Rowe, 
is sentenced to some kind of suffering. And the question is, what kind of suffering was it? Not surprisingly, the same kind our Lord went through that same century. He was killed by crucifixion in front of Callie Rose tomb, which was empty, as we find out if we read the rest of the story. So, Andrew, that was a delightful discussion with Joseph. What's your top three out of the many tidbits that fell from his lips? Yeah, the, there was a lot of good information there. I, I thought, number one, you, you kind of pointed out, and I keyed up to it as well, guys should read Jane Austen, <laughs> which is uh, it's a bold statement. Uh, but <laughs> you heard it here first, and I, I would concur. I think that's a great piece of advice to, to understand women better. And if you're like me, that would be helpful. So yes, I would say uh, that's number if, one. If any man says he cannot understand women better, he's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> number two, the one that kind of caught me the most is the three levels of allegory, which obviously he alluded to and come from St. Thomas. And when you're looking at good literature, trying to read it in this way, and if you've, if you know, at times, if you're like me, when you've read a good book, and you know it's supposed to be a classic, and it's just not—it's not clear to you why everybody else loves this. Get a teacher, you know. Yes. If it's confusing, get a teacher. And uh, Professor Pierce is a great example. And so that's my point number three. Uh, he he had mentioned offline homeschoolconnections.com, which is a great place for learning things in, in homeschool, especially for for students. Uh, but he teaches there, and then also his website jpierce.co and his new book, Twelve Great Books. I'm going to avail myself to a teacher. And I was enjoying this talk so much because I said, gee whiz, this is the type of stuff. You know it's there, but if somebody doesn't point it out, it's not always self-evident to you. Amen. Hey, thank you listeners for being with us for something a little different today on Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top and you can search over 290 episodes by topic or guest. And we now offer a video version of our podcast. Just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage on drdoctor.org. And if you have a question or an idea for an episode topic, just click where it says submit a question and send us your ideas. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.